0: seated. Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 22, we'll be reading 22, 24 through 30. But while you're turning there, let's, let's think for a minute, what is greatness? That's what we'll be thinking about, learning about this morning from the scriptures. I want to ask, who is great in our world? You know, how does the world think about greatness? So we can have a little contrast with, with how God thinks about greatness. What, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, in the world, who is great? We might think about the Times Person of the Year. The last one for last year. That's Elon Musk. Is he a great man? Well, He's kind of a great businessman, at least, right? Uh, he's Some days, he's the richest man in the world. He's certainly influential. He's very interesting, right? He's uh, started up SpaceX, revolutionized how we get to space with rockets. And I like following that part. I love rockets in space and things like that. Uh, and Tesla and, and many other things. And he's been very successful. So maybe he's a great man. I think he could be a, a great man in the world. We might also think of, what, maybe accomplished people like Nobel Prize winners, People who, through their, their skill and hard work, are the top in their field. And they're recognized, they're known. Many are household names. Some aren't. But they might be great, right? Have somebody, one I like to highlight, partly because of his name, uh, he invented the modern lithium batteries. His name is John Goodenough. <laughs> he's good enough. He's, yeah, he's, he's very good at what he does. He also invented, like, Key parts of RAM and computers and many other things, very smart guy, or a more famous example of somebody like Albert Einstein, right the great physicist, Albert Einstein, or maybe if you want to go further back Thomas Edison, great inventors right these are all people that are successful and rich and influential they're you know they're kind of powerful in, in their own way at least high status and usually we think of great people as at least maybe should think of them, as people we admire, but we want to be like them. And sometimes not, like maybe politicians. <laughs> that could be a good example. Uh, certainly some politicians would be considered great in the world. To try and not be too derailing of the topic here, I'll go back to, say, Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton. You know, Maybe you would think of them as great men. Some are perhaps great and terrible, it depends what you think. Like Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, right? They're, they're great in the sense they're very powerful. They lead, strongly lead, some of the most powerful countries on earth, even if we disagree with or, or don't like how they go about that, right? But there's a sense in which they're great. They're, they're kind of big and important, kind of great in the world. When we think back historically, great people, what does it mean to be, who is great historically? We usually think of royals, or nobility, right? Emperors or kings or generals, maybe. And that's because that's who's powerful and rich enough to make a big difference in the world. They make the big moves, and that's why they get written in the history books, right? They're big and important, good or bad. It can go either way. We have very positive people, at least I think of them very positively, like George Washington, He's a great man, certainly rich, and even before he became a general in the Revolution, he was kind of the American equivalent of aristocracy. He was rich and influential, popular. Certainly after fighting in the war, many people tried to name him king of America. So he's certainly a great man. I'd say he's even greater for refusing that honor. Um, Many people, I have many friends who think that um, perhaps... Uh, Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson were great men. We could think of Queen Victoria, the sun never set on the British Empire. And certainly many of us enjoy uh, some shows like Downton Abbey or something digging into the details of British aristocracy. Or it could be, maybe if there's a neutral, more neutral thought, maybe Napoleon. To kind of end on, I think, maybe less positive, the man who, his name defines Power and greatness in so many ways. Julius Caesar, which is a great reference for our our scripture day, right? This is the time of Christ. His name became synonymous with the emperors of Rome and even Kaiser into Germany and that kind of thing. He he named power. And that's kind of how the rulers of his time were, much different than today, thankfully, in, in many ways or many cases. They were tyrants. They had You know, almost absolute control of what was going on. And they were amassing personal power and often there was little accountability, at least until one of their supporters turned on them. Uh, And then, biblical history, we we think of great civilizations and powers like the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Their leaders were often worshipped as gods. So I think that's... Brief survey there of kind of what is, who is great in the world? What is greatness according to the world? Well, let's turn from that and look to see what Jesus has to say. What does Jesus say is great? So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, we'll read Luke 22, 24 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. A dispute arose among the apostles, this is at Passover, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you or grant to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table and my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The word of the Lord may be seated. me for a moment. Almighty God, our great and wonderful Savior, please visit us this morning and send your spirit to open our eyes, open our ears, that we might see true greatness, the greatness that we find in Jesus Christ and in your kingdom, and that we would not be blinded by the ways of the world, the ways that our selfish hearts naturally twist the truth. Please teach us and speak to us this morning. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So here we have, verse twenty-four. The apostles are arguing about who's the greatest. You know, it's like, can you imagine that they're sitting around at Passover, after this is when Jesus is just given us the Lord's Supper, feasting of His His body and blood, and they're going to argue about who's the greatest in front of the most humble man on earth. They've been following him. They see how he treats people, how he treats them. And yet, they're going to argue and fight with one another about who's the greatest. who has the highest status, the highest position, or, or maybe authority over the other apostles. It's kind of hard to imagine that they would be so bold. <laughs> it's hard for me to, to put myself in their shoes and do that, but I mean, we're all sinners, so I'm sure we definitely could in the right situation, right? But it's striking that the apostles are arguing with one another about who's the greatest. And they're, they're approaching this very much in the way of the world. They're looking at this like the lords and kings of the world do. It's about selfish power. It's about pride. It's about privilege. But Jesus corrects them. He calls them out pretty clearly <laughs> and extremely, uh, thankfully. Some good correction here that it's not about power, pride, and privilege. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. So among the disciples, we're not to to treat each other this way, we could say, right? So the kings of Gentiles lordship, you know, we think of lording over people, tyrannical rule, and even, he calls here, those in authority of them are called benefactors. This is kind of thinking, thinking to mind, bringing to mind grace. Like uh, the, I think the Greek literally means something like friend of the people. But this is often a title that was given to tyrants. Think of Roman emperors, right? Oh, they're a friend of the people. right? Well, yeah, some propaganda there. <laughs> um, but not so with you. So what is going on here at the heart level when you have the apostles fighting with one another about who's the greatest, you know, just jockeying for position? Is it that simple? Well, to dig a bit deeper, I think we need to think about human needs, what we need and desire and long for in our hearts. At a very deep level about part of our identity, we're seeking recognition. We need affirmation from somewhere. We're going to seek it out somewhere. Whether we find it or not is a different question. We seek affirmation. uh, Authority. We certainly deeply desire security. And that drives many of our decisions, consciously or unconsciously, subconsciously, right? And we want to be significant. We want to be meaningful in the world and certainly in other people's eyes, but even just in general. And we're always going to seek that somewhere and... The apostles are not seeking that in God, but in the eyes of men, in the eyes of one another. But is it wrong to seek greatness? I think that's a good question to stop and ask as Jesus is correcting them because it's not supposed to be like the world. The world often seeks greatness. There's been some whole cultures that were kind of centered around encouraging people to seek greatness and honor. Is it wrong to seek greatness? No, I think we should absolutely seek greatness seek greatness but we need to make sure it's the right kind of greatness that it's greatness according to god true greatness out of god's wisdom and his way and his time so we'll kind of think about how to do that or what that means uh, but how do we meet these needs you know thinking about the heart level right we need affirmation recognition security where do we find those Well, if we can't truly find them in the world, then, of course, we look to God. God in his way and his time, which often requires some waiting. But we'll get to that future as well. So let's move on to verse 26. This is where everything flips on its head. Jesus redefines greatness, and he, he reverses it. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the weakest. And the leader as one who serves. So, why the youngest? It's a little different from our culture, to draw a little contrast here. So, the old are supposed to be like the young. Well, in most cultures historically, and certainly this context, the old were respected much more than they are in our cultural context because of their experience because of what they've contributed to the world, what they've learned, their role in the family and leadership. And often because of that, the young were not. Like we have Paul exhorting Timothy not to be too timid, not to let people be dismissive of him because he's a young man. And yet God is going to use him to pastor and shepherd a congregation. So the young are a much lower status, right? More humble. So in our culture... Maybe that would be reversed in some ways. The young should be like the old. <laughs> Often it depends on the circles, but you know, some circles of American culture, the youth is held up above all else. But maybe they should think about slowing down a little bit. Being a little more willing to listen and consider others and valuing experience and those sorts of things. The second part of the verse, and as the leader. And the leader as one who serves. So a leader is supposed to be a servant. Or a ruler. It's a leader or a ruler. It becomes a servant. There's not many kings that I can think of that would act like one of their servants one of the people to help them dress, or clean and buff their shoes, or bring in all the food and all that, right? Among less pleasant activities. So a ruler is to become like a servant. But Jesus does give us a helpful example here to clarify. Verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So we see Jesus flipping the paradigm on its head. He's there, the son of God. He's given authority over all creation. And yet he's washing people's dirty feet. Right? And we've heard this, that story many times. But if you think about, what would you, could you imagine a situation where a king would come down off his throne and wash the feet of one of his servants that just came in with muddy boots? It's hard to imagine. But there's something here, right, that's, that's beautiful in Jesus' humility. And what's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus and his service in the way of the world or the apostles in this situation. is that Jesus loves God and his neighbor above all else. It's humble service, right? He's not serving himself, his own interest. He's not just amassing power and influence or riches. He's not concerned with his reputation above all else. But he stoops to wash feet, to serve, to serve the dinner table. He's not the guest of honor. Well, actually, in this case, he was. In many cases, he was. And yet, still, he would serve. He would be a servant. The two greatest commandments, to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's driving Jesus here. He's not proud. We shouldn't be proud. We're all sinners before God. But Jesus was perfect, and yet, still, he was not proud, but humble. He's not being selfish, but working for others' good. So we have this pattern. We have the perfect example of humility, of love, of service in Jesus Christ. And in that, we actually have the pattern for greatness. Not greatness according to the world, but greatness modeled by the Son of God. Here we have Jesus basically blowing up all social strata. You know, every layer of status, he's wiping it away. All are equal before God. No leader is above their servant in a very practical way. We have a perfect example of humility and service and self-sacrifice. Of course, Jesus went on to literally give himself his life, his body, and his suffering and separation from the Father for others, for sinners even. He was not in that moment living for his own interest, but he was loving God his Father, honoring him, working for his glory, and working for our good, for our joy, so that we might be reconciled to him. Jesus Christ did not hold his status, equality with God as something to be held onto, right? He stooped, he came down and humbled himself according to the wishes of his father. And this is folly to the Gentiles and often to us. Right? The folly the gospel, and this is a big piece of why, but the gospel is folly to the Gentiles and the stumbling block of the Jews. Because it's not the greatness that they want. It's not the greatness that they respect in others or that they want for themselves. Do you want that greatness? Do you want to be a humble, suffering servant like Jesus? Think of Jesus walking on the sand. And he's telling Peter how much he's going to suffer for him. But he wants to be you know, a great servant. It's like, well, to be great in the kingdom, you have to suffer. There's so much we could highlight about the story of Jesus and who he is and what we see in him and humility and love. But I'll just take one real quick, I think is a great example of touching on the heart of this, and that's the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. That Jesus come up to an outcast from society. The Samaritans were avoided almost at all costs by the Jews. They were lesser and and even dirty, right? They corrupted the Jewish religion, that's about as many roadblocks as you could get for Jesus as a rabbi, as a respected man within society. He's stepping across social boundaries and status and repu- He's you know, risking reputation to talk to this woman at a well who's a Samaritan. And she's a sinner, certainly. She's living with a man and not married. He's had quite a few marriages before, right? But then he doesn't come in harshly, does he? No, he's gentle, And kind, especially at the beginning, is gentle. But yet he also grows bold in love. He's decisive in truth. Not to hurt, but out of love for the Father. Out of love for worship and for the woman. And for the lost that she would minister to. He risked his reputation. Most would reject him for what he did. Even just to speak to her, much less... What does he do? He asks for water from her. He would even have to touch the same thing or drink from you know, her pail. That's unthinkable. And yet, he does that because he has a soft heart and he is unyielding in his purpose to love and work for the good of those around him. Okay, so let's think about the results of this greatness. What comes out of this greatness? Verse 28. If we persevere as disciples, this is what happens. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign, or grant to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember who the apostles are, right? They're fishermen. Mostly uneducated. They've been following him around, but they've stuck with him. They've persevered, even when they had to suffer. They didn't have much. Traveling around all the time. They had the Pharisees hassling them. <laughs> but they stuck with Jesus. He's saying, if you persevere, I will give you, I will grant you a place in my kingdom. You will be a judge. I remember that a judge, thinking back to the judges in the Old Testament, isn't just someone at a bench with a gavel. It's a position of leadership, of authority, leading God's people. So here, these fishermen who are suffering and following Jesus around will become the leaders of Israel. This is the kingdom of God flipping everything on its head. The great in the world are not the great in the kingdom of God. Worldly greatness, its power, riches, influence, it does not last. But the kingdom of God is eternal. So if we persevere as disciples, we'll be great in his kingdom. And what follows out of this greatness in Jesus Christ is the good news that we fall short of God's greatness, of his glory, and yet the good news, the gospel, is that he brings us in. He reconciles us. In Jesus' own life, his death, And his resurrection, he brings us in to his kingdom. And even more, we are adopted, right? We are children of the living God. We are great in Jesus, not because of what's in us. It's not internal, really, right? We take and become like him. We have his righteousness, his perfect life. And it's that same grace that works in us to perfect us. To make us like God, to make us humble, to make us servants, to make us risk our reputations in order to reach out to someone that could ruin us because everyone rejects them, pushes them away because they're dirty, because they have a bad reputation? I don't know. It is that grace through faith that makes us great. And will one day make us perfect and glorified. Right? It's the same all the way through. We're made like God. And let's return to dig a little deeper into the heart. Right? We're thinking before. What was it that the apostles were driven by to argue and fight with one another? At the Last Supper. About who's the greatest. Which is crazy. They're driven by these heart desires. And we are so often driven by the exact same thing. We need security. Affirmation, We want to be recognized and significant. But here, Jesus Christ is promising that he will meet our needs and our desires. He will recognize us. We're significant in his eyes, in his heart, and his kingdom. We are safe there. We're significant. He affirms who we are, especially in who he's making us, right? Not just that we wallow in sin, but what he is working in us even now. God meets those needs. And nothing else can. The world cannot. I want to highlight one last practical thing. This has been a real struggle for me lately. And one of the reasons I wanted to spend time with this passage. And that's having humility in service. So it's it's a wonderful thing that in our culture we've been so influenced that the idea of a servant leader is actually Quite widespread. We think of that often. And usually when we're making conscious choices, we try, even for those in leadership positions, to serve the good of others. And that's a wonderful thing. But often we still focus on ourselves instead of on God, or others, I guess. On His power, instead of our power. On what He's working, instead of just what we want to work. Right? We focus not in humility, but in a kind of pride at least, on our own strength and what we can do. We live and walk in our own strength. And even when that can go negative, it's still its own kind of pride to be consumed with yourself, even when that's anxiety and fear, because we're not enough to meet whatever challenge. And then if you are successful, that's a quick road to arrogance, So I call you to consider how you might be more humble in service and certainly what I've been praying about and thinking about myself to find our strength our confidence our rest in Jesus and who he is for us and what God is working in us and around us and through us not because we are great but because he is great. And this is a huge problem in our world. Even in ministry, certainly for many pastors, but all over, people are burning out left and right. And that's basically what burnout is. It's not resting in God, driving yourself into the ground because you're not relying on His strength. And that's not a humble position. You you could be serving others with everything you have and yet not be walking humbly like Jesus did. Think about How Jesus lived. He was humble and dependent on God. The God man. The son of God would take times of rest. He would regularly take time to get away from people and to spend time in prayer. Because he needed his father. He depended on his father. That was a rhythm of his life. Is that a rhythm in your life? I know there's times when I struggle with that. He walked in active dependence on God because he's humble. He's humble. Because God didn't make us to stand in our own strength, but to depend on him. We need God's strength. And that's a constant struggle. And, you know, we know this. I know this is a reminder for the vast majority of us, right? But our hearts are constantly twisting back in on ourselves. It's so easy to fall back into subconsciously focusing ourselves on our own power or just what we want to do. Self-reliance. So we need to walk in dependence for God's yoke is light, right? His burden is light. We're sinners and we have to face that before God. But if we trust him and walk in faith, suddenly the world seems so much lighter because he takes our sin. He is guiding us and helping us and preparing us for the challenges to come in the future. If you walk with Jesus... The burden is light. And I love what Paul has to say. When he's weak, then he is strong, strong in faith. And that's so much more valuable and important than being physically strong, to be rich or influential, to have high status, but instead to walk humbly before our God, which gives us peace and freedom. And don't we all want that? Don't we all want peace? and freedom there's a great reminder a call to walk humbly. Right, please pray with me. Almighty God, you are great, and we are not. We ask that you would work deeply into our hearts, that we would rest in you, that we would find all of our heart's longings in you, that we would not be bickering with one another about who's the greatest, that we wouldn't be Chasing after the world, the world's own kind of greatness, but instead that we would chase after you, that we would be like Jesus, that we would be humble, that we would be servants, that we would love you and your glory above all the world, and that we would work for the good of others to love our neighbors as ourselves. Please work this in our hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit, and may Christ have all the glory. Amen. Please join me. Stand to confess our faith together with the Apostles' Creed. You'll find that in the bulletin. We'll read that together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, And, question from the Shorter Catechism. Question number four What is God? God? God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Amen. You may be seated. Now, pray for the offering before the officers come forward. Great and mighty God, we thank you for your overflowing provision, that you give us peace. You work in our hearts to satisfy us. We offer back a small offering that you, you command, but we do it with joyful hearts, I hope, or help us to do it with joyful hearts, out of thankfulness for your love for us. We offer this trusting that you will use it to bless ministry here at Bethel and around the whole world. We ask that you would work for your glory and worship and praise. All over. In Christ's name we pray. We pray. Amen.